Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I'm Rivka Rivera. Okay, Rivka, we need to continue and, and make an addendum to our conversation that we had last week uh, about the Netflix reality show Squid Game The Challenge. So for our listeners, you can go back to uh, the Zoolander episode where we first talked about this. Basically, if you haven't heard, uh, this Netflix reality competition series called Squid Game The Challenge, uh, aired on Netflix a few, two, three weeks ago, four weeks ago at this point, based on the wildly popular South Korean scripted drama series from a couple of years ago called Squid Game, which is a deeply anti-capitalist piece of storytelling about, uh, you know, these people on the margins of South Korean society competing in this deadly game to win, like, you know, four and a half million dollars or whatever. So... Squid Game, the original series, deeply political, radical, revolutionary. We loved it. Squid Game, the challenge comes out a few weeks ago and we're like, this is fucking bullshit. This shouldn't exist. This is, you know, co-opting and bastardizing what was all, what was a pure, brilliant political piece of media. And so we had some thoughts about it last week, specifically how the, the creator, it had seemed, had endorsed this reality competition. So this is a little bit of a mea culpa because we, you know, there was some additional context that we weren't aware of. So we wanted to um, bring it up now. So apparently the creator of Squid Game, the original scripted drama series, uh, South Korean writer and director Hwang Dong-hyuk received zero royalties or residuals for his original story. So what, we, what we've learned is basically that Netflix has exploited this creator on such a massive scale. So we were a little quick to, I think, judge his um, his tame critique of the reality show Squid Game. I'm thinking about how, like, you know, capitalism did it again. It and just again. how um, the ideology is so baked into us and, and how we process, how I process things. And it's so brilliant because capitalism is a system. It's such an exploitative system that it's so much easier and it's so much more emotionally satisfying to immediately go to an individual, particularly an individual that sure. you want to put on a pedestal because they created such a brilliant show and you want that one person alone to be able to, you know, bite, rip off, fucking curse the hand that feeds it in some ways or be the standard bearer for that the, the messaging that was embedded into that original series exactly to replace all of the work that a union and solidarity do, like this is why those things exist because it is so fucking impossible and not not necessarily fair to expect require desire that and it's easy to also assume and it does it time and time again that because a person's show is wildly successful they must be, you know, again, I'm like, wow, that was so fast to assume, like, of course, this person is getting some fi major financial benefit. And that's why they're staying silent and not saying, you know, there's so much yeah, more yeah. we know from uh, the networks, from all the films we've seen. It's they capitalism has its shit figured out. It's a scary ass system. And it just I'm just thinking about how it reminds us over and over again. It's it's got to be a group effort. And it's so hard to be a whistleblower. It's so hard to stand up in the face of that. And 
And not even that this creator didn't even try, but we'll get into more details of it. But that's what I'm thinking about. I was like, damn, did it again. <laughs> did it again. It's also a reminder of how important context is in discussing really anything. If you were just going face value off of the the articles of, you know, the creator talking about the reality show, you'd mm. be like, oh, well, this guy totally sold out. And again, you know, we, we should have dug in a little bit more into the context of the, the past few years because it was very easy to find that, oh, actually, this person has made basically no money off of this massively, massively successful series and just how important that context is to understanding the current moment. So I'm going to be pulling mostly from uh, an LA Times report on the way that Netflix exploits uh, South Korean filmmakers. So specifically with the creator of Squid Game, he had been pitching it for about 10 years before Netflix bought it, which was one of the reasons he was so eager to sign the contract. He was living with his mother and his grandmother and at one point had to sell his $675 laptop to raise money. But when Netflix finally picked up the show. In return, Huang forfeited all rights and royalties to what would become one of the streamer's biggest shows ever. And again, royalties, residuals, these are just words for, you know, money on the back end that creators are paid if their show or their movie or whatever becomes massively successful. So a little information about how successful Squid Game was for Netflix. The series was made for about $2.4 million an episode, which is about a fourth of the cost of Stranger Things. It went on to win six Emmys, set a Netflix record for 1.65 billion viewing hours in its first 28 days of release, and according to internal Netflix documents, increased the value of the company by an estimated $900 million. And in his contract, Huang had forfeited all intellectual property rights, received no residuals, and he said in an interview around the time that Squid Game had earned him, quote, enough money to put food on the table. Wow. You know what's so fascinating about that particular story is that we're we're sold this mythology so often in the arts that, you know, you have to do anything you can, sell your laptop, sell the starving artist, because it's going to pay off. And when it does, it's going to pay off big. And so that also might be, it's so easy to believe like, wow, he put everything into it, starved, but it paid off big. And it's so easy to like that's also part of why mm. it's so easy to believe that because you're yeah. like, well, that's the that's the again, the capitalist mythology that we're sold. It pays off big. And even this case when like it should have, it fucking didn't. And it's so easy to believe it did from the outside appearance. Literally their biggest hit up until that point increased the 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 company's value by almost one billion dollars. Like and this this poor fucking artist did not see a penny of that extra success. So this LA Times article, which I will we'll link to in the show notes, is actually about how Netflix has been doing this, not just with Huang, but with like a number of Korean series and creators. So they've become one of the biggest buyers of Korean dramas in their ability to produce what the industry calls, quote, cost-effective content. So basically, Netflix can go to other parts of the world where maybe production unions or a state's laws aren't as strong as the U.S. and can get much, much cheaper content. Quote again from this article, at the same time, South Koreans throughout the nation's entertainment industry are increasingly questioning the Netflix business model and raising concerns that the country is becoming little more than a bargain bin for the global streamer. It all comes down to labor costs, said Kim Ki-young, president of the Broadcasting Staffs Union, which represents production crews. There is a staggering amount of unpaid labor being done. So... I mean, this is just as standard of a move in the capitalist playbook as possible. 
when costs become too expensive, or not even too expensive, when, when, when you don't want to bear the costs of producing things domestically here in the U.S. or in Europe or places that have stronger labor protections, then your next move is to go internationally, find a country where you can basically get the same quality of work and pay people much, 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 much less to produce it. This is basically what we've seen over the last several decades in the U.S. of just like offshoring jobs to places that have weaker labor regulations where you can just get cheaper labor and that it's incredibly exploitative and harmful. So I'm glad that this is now being talked about because Netflix isn't any different than, I don't know, like an automobile manufacturing company or like a textile producing company that's like, oh, I guess we can just go to get some sweatshop labor. So apologies to the creator of Squid Game, who we were harsh to judge last week, but glad we got the chance to add this additional context so that people actually know that actually wasn't this guy's fault. Up oh, once again, it's the exploitative nature of capitalism. Yes. And we were shared this information from our friend who listens to the show. But we get a lot of emails that I just think I want to point out. It's so great to be in dialogue with listeners and I think that's our responsibility to one another. No one's going to know all the context all the time. And I think that's a really, as we talk about ways in which we practice our values, that can be one of them as well as like sharing, yeah, you know, sharing information, sharing the sharing this information and finding ways to be in dialogue. I think I have recovered from being afraid to share information at times when I feel like, oh, is that going to feel aggressive? Is that going to feel like I am telling someone they're wrong so i mm -hmm. think that's another another way to share that and just along those lines we had a listener share uh this was in our premium episode but about audiobooks and that we were in a talk we were talking about britney spears audiobook if you would like to listen to that you can subscribe <laughs> it's a really good episode um it was a very good conversation i learned a lot about britney spears in this conversation it's a great book and there's a lot of anti-capitalist themes. However, we were talking about Michelle Williams does the narration. And I had made a comment that I think listening to an audiobook is different than reading. And this listener made a point that there's a lot of people who are not able to read and that audiobooks is a form of reading and that there's using that language can be problematic. I don't want to use the word problematic, but can get in the way of a real fight for accessibility. And, you know, again, that expanded. I'm like, oh, I won't. That's totally true. Expanded my way of thinking about it. And I love that that was I love that that person took the time to share that with us. So thank you for the things you we, we read your emails. So thank you. But let's let's get to a cheerier. Well, I don't even know how cheery, but it's pretty really, cheery. It's cheery. It's exciting because. We it is December eleventh as we're recording this. It's Christmas time. It's Christmas time. It's holiday time. I actually saw that the movie we're talking about, It's a Wonderful Life, is currently being screened at IFC if you want to see it on the big screen and then listen Ooh. to our conversation if you're in New York. But before we get to that conversation, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. Yes, we perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, 
We don't sell ads on this show. Instead, we rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you will be directly supporting this show. You could also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast app. It takes two seconds, and it's super helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, and we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our conversation about It's a Wonderful Life with Melanie Bessie. Okay, today we are very excited to be rejoined by a returning guest, Melanie Vessie. Melanie is a comedian, actress. Hi, hello. Be be quiet until I finish your biography, please. Thank you. I know it's very yes and. We're jumping in right off the top. Uh, (laughs) Melanie is a comedian, actress, writer, and director whose comedy special Wild Animal is available to watch on Amazon Prime. Uh, you can also check out her interview on WTF with Mark Marin, my old boss. And Melanie also works as a promotions consultant. You can find her work there with her company, Promotional Rescue. Melanie, welcome back to Movies vs. Capitalism. Thank you, Frank. Sorry to jump in too soon. I'm already over-caffeinated and so fucking excited to talk to you about my all-time favorite movie. So please excuse my enthusiasm. It's uh, duly excused. Absolutely. No, I'm I'm very excited. You've been pitching this movie from the first time I we talked to you about this podcast. We were like, we're doing a movie a podcast about movies and capitalism. And you're like, it's a wonderful life. And we were like, Melanie, it's March. This is not the time for a holiday movie. But here we are. Finally here got to do it. Here we are. Before we get into that, I we we did we were chatting a little bit before we started recording about your your business, Promotional Rescue, where you work with a lot of uh comedians, actors, creative types uh in LA helping them promote the work that they're doing. And you know, Rifkin and I have talked this a lot about this a lot that when I when I was in LA and still doing that whole the whole Hollywood thing and I I know Rifkin still feels this, that the feeling of having to promote one's self was very often like a really disgusting feeling. It felt very like self-serving. It felt very bullshitty. So I'm just curious, like that's that's like one of your businesses. So how do you navigate that within like the broader Hollywood ecosystem? Because because you know, un- un- unfortunately, self-promotion is an important part of being a-, a creative, especially within the business of Hollywood. Um, one hundred percent. And my uh, company, literally, my like byline is: I teach people how to promote themselves without feeling gross, um, because that component, the component of self-promotion, comes with a tremendous ar- amount of feelings. People bring all of these feelings into it. And the feelings are valid. You know, either you were raised by people who told you like, well, you think a lot of yourself that you're talking about this so much, or your friends have told you that you're bragging, or you've got an aunt or a teacher or somebody who kind of like wanted to bring you down a peg because you were either proud of what you were talking about or you needed to tell people what was going on with you. And so there are a lot of feelings around this. And even when you said you were like, oh, my God, it's like all there's all this bullshit. There's all this stuff around it. But I can tell you that in every conversation that my clients have with other people of import, so larger opportunities, representation, uh, people who want to pick up their show, people who want to have that the 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 conversation around promotion is one of the main conversations. Why? Because 
you're creating your art not for yourself. Very, very rarely are you just creating something for yourself. Most people want to share it with an audience. So what I help people do is frame it in their mind how they can talk about this stuff and not have those demons creep in and do that kind of self-saboteur thing. Because at the end of the day, you can Google how to post on social media. I could give you a PDF right now about how to share, what to share, when to share, all of that stuff. But what I specialize in and why I'm different from somebody who just considers them a so themselves a social media guru or whatever it is they want to fucking call themselves is that I'm concerned with your operating system. Why are you having problems doing this? So when I'm talking with clients, I'm listening to what they're saying. So you can't ha you can't talk shit about social media and then want great results. It's like you got to you got to pick one. You're either going to hate this or you got to embrace it and to get those good results. And I can tell you that my clients that get the best results around it they don't have a lot of feelings around it. They go, what are we talking about? Got a special coming out? Great. What do we do? We got to do this. We got to do that. We got to make a video. We got to rebrand your accounts. Got to put it on the website. We got to talk to the publicist. There's no feelings around it. They see it as a tool. It's just a tool. It's like, like when you go to a, like when you go to an open mic and someone's saying something racist, homophobic, horrible into the microphone, no one's mad at microphones. It's the person that's saying those horrible things. Social media is just an amplification system to share your project with the world. And what I do is help people get over that hump and to share their amazing project with the world because they should and they should have success around it. Everyone should get eyeballs on the thing that they've been working so hard on. This is hard work and you shouldn't like crap out because people are bullshit and they do dumb shit on social media. That's amazing and so beautiful that you're that you're a champion of artists in that sense. And it sounds like you're also helping artists become a champion of their own work while deconstructing a lot of mythology, a lot of belief systems that are inherited, like you said, from family, but also probably, I'm sure you come across a lot of belief systems and mythology that's inherited from capitalism, from the things you are and you're not allowed to say about yourself, uh, promote yourself, the ways in which you're allowed to talk about your art. And it can actually be very liberating to free yourself of those. Oh my God, 100%. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I feel like sometimes there is this shame in wanting to earn and to earn from what you love to do. And I feel like sometimes like people don't think in terms of that. And I'm like, you should be earning from what you are creating. And, and because it, because the more you earn from it, the less you maybe have to work at a job that you fucking hate. Why not try and make some money from what you love doing? And hopefully people love it as well. I, you make me laugh. And this is like what's so challenging right now and what so many of my clients are facing is you're promoting at a time when the world is so sad and challenging about what's going on. But people need humor. They need it. We need a break from, and that's not to say like, you know, I'm, I'm, we're not contributing, we're not donating, we're not maybe doing our, giving our time in those areas, but we also need a break from those things. We do need to laugh. We do need to connect. We do need to feel like a person inside what we're doing. And so I feel like earning inside of this, 
And I feel like sometimes people feel like they sh they deserve to not earn and then they don't set themselves up to like make a dime. And I feel like then it can be predatory. People can't believe that when I perform at the major clubs in California that I don't get paid or I get paid $10. I'm not even going to talk about the, which club it is. Ten, ten whole dollars. You know what I mean? And I sign <laughs> a little thing. They give me a 10. Are there any organized like collectives for um comics we like i'm thinking about we've interviewed some of the people from means tv which is you know a collective for for filmmaking and distribution of materials i wonder if there's any i don't know you were saying that and i'm like oh what are what are solutions there do you know of any melanie so that is a great question i don't i don't personally but that doesn't mean that isn't going on what i do know in the world of comedy is they've tried to unionize and that's what the tv show i'm dying up here is about and you should watch it. It's an amazing, first off, it's a fantastic book. It is also an incredible TV show. I think it was produced by Jim Carrey. It, it's a great show that breaks down the unionization, what they, when they tried to unionize comedy. Mm. However, comics, and I'm saying this all with love, this is not a d judgment, uh, which is uh, no one will stop performing. So everyone's gonna scab, someone's gonna take, if someone can get that spot, their motherfucker's gonna take that spot. And they're going to see it as their come up and they're going to cross that line as because because in order for us to unionize, everyone has to take it off the table. We will not perform until you give us money. And I think originally it was with Mitzi Shore and people were like, why can't you just give them 25 bucks so that they can get a burger and some gas money home? But see, it hasn't changed since 1975 or whatever. So wow. even comics on the road are making the same money. And I'm sure you guys have talked about this. It's no different for comedy than it is for everything else. We're making the same money that we made in the 80s when meanwhile, you can't live off $300 performing over a weekend. It's not possible. It's not possible to live. That's that's one of the unfortunate drawbacks of the highly competitive nature of being an actor, comic, writer, whatever in Hollywood in that, you know, it's... It's very difficult to get those those jobs, those long-term paid gigs, and they are they're much fewer and far between than the amount of people actually pursuing to get them. So it's what you're talking about. Like there's the 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 moments for solidarity are 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 challenging, and it, it, I imagine feels like an uphill battle because everything you're saying, like oh well, if I if I don't perform out of solidarity, then you know fucking Joe asshole is gonna get that that writing gig or that acting gig or whatever. One hundred percent, and that's gonna be their come up. And it's like, it's like you can't stop the waves at the beach. So this is why if you just kind of focus on, and I think this also leads into our conversations around capitalism and all that stuff. Like if you focus in on what you're doing in your world and what you're okay with and what's right for you, you're going to navigate this in a, in a different way or because you can't control what other people are going to do. And unfortunately... It would be for the greater good, but we just watched what happened over the past three or four years. People had the opportunity to help the greater good. Not everybody did that. People were out for self. You're not going to cover me up. I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do that. You know what I mean? People were looking out for self as opposed to the community. But I think, and this will even lead back to the movie, that I feel like there's also somewhere in the middle where you can support the community, but also get what you need to be successful in your own world. Because I feel like the pendulum doesn't always have to swing in either direction where you're either so selfless that you're giving up everything 
in the face of nothing and no one cares and they're going to take everything they can from you or someone's going to fucking take everything from you because they're a fucking heartless billionaire and who gives a fuck? You know what I mean? Let's jump into it. Yeah, I think we're primed and ready to discuss your favorite film, um, one of America's favorite holiday classics, It's a Wonderful Life. You've most likely, if you're listening to this, if you haven't rewatched it in a while, you've seen it play on TV at some point between November and January. It's just like constantly running. So yes, it's the film we're talking about, It's a Wonderful Life, released in 1946, directed by Frank Capra, written by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, and Frank Capra, with additional contributions from Joe Swirling, based on the short story The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern. The film stars, famously, James Stewart as George Bailey, Donna Reed as Mary Hatch Bailey, Lionel Barrymore as Mr. Potter, and more. The budget for this film was 3.1, like around 3.18 million, and the box office was only 3.3 million. So it was considered a flop upon release, but it would later, as I mentioned, become this Christmas classic after its copyright lapsed in 1974. And so it fell into public domain, which allowed it to be broadcast without licensing or royalty fees. Wow. A synopsis to catch us all up on this film, It's a Wonderful Life tells the story of George Bailey, played by Stort, a man who consistently puts the needs of his community in Bedford Falls above his personal ambitions, George takes over the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan Association after his father's death, thwarting the efforts of the greedy banker, Mr. Henry F. Potter, who aims to monopolize the town. George's life takes a dramatic turn on Christmas Eve when his uncle Billy loses 8,000 of the company's money. Facing financial ruin and criminal charges, George contemplates suicide, only to be saved by Clarence Oddbody, an angel sent to help him. Clarence shows George a bleak alternate reality without him now under Potter's harsh rule. This revelation helps George appreciate his significant impact on others, and he returns to a heartwarming welcome from the townspeople who rally to save the building and loan. The film ends with George realizing the immense value of community and individual influence surrounded by loved ones. Um, so a little bit of uh, historical context for when this film came out. As Rivka mentioned, it is 1946. World War II has just ended, the first year of the baby boom era, which lasted until 1964, with over 76 million births in the United States. Oh, my God. And there would be no consequences from that afterwards. Um, <laughs> on December 31st, 11 days after the film's release, President Truman issues a presidential proclamation that declares an official end to World War II. Same year, the United Nations holds its first meeting in London, marking the start of its efforts to maintain international peace and security. Winston Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri, warns Americans about the potential of Soviet expansion throughout the world, symbolizing the start of the Cold War between the Western Bloc and the Soviet Union. And the House Un-American Activities Committee, which had been established in 1938, intensifies its investigations into alleged communist influence in Hollywood, leading to the blacklisting of artists and the infamous Hollywood 10 hearings of 1947. A Cadillac costs $1,935. A <laughs> bottle of Coke is one nickel. And three Hershey's bars cost 13 cents. The average life expectancy in the United States is 66.7 years. Benadryl, the food processor, Tide Laundry, and Tupperware are all introduced to consumers. George Orwell's novel Animal Farm is published. 
And finally, the bikini swimsuit is introduced by French designer Louis Rayard in 1946 and caused a significant stir due to its revealing design. Wow. So that wow, 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 is... Wow, wow, wow. Wow, 1946. So, Melanie, you know, we've talked about this a little bit already, but why did you choose this movie for us to watch on this podcast? Frame for frame, word for word, this movie is cinema perfection. And I will die, motherfucking die on this hill. There is not a, <laughs> there is not a hair out of place in this film in terms of, in my opinion... The human condition, faith, community, the good versus evil, have, the have not. It's literally like in my mind, it is utter perfection. And every time I watch it, I am reminded as to how epic it is. And I watched it again just for this to be like, because to watch it through the lens of specifically this conversation. And I would have to say that the, I don't think that there's a sentence in that movie where they aren't discussing money how money affects people, how money affects your relationship. Sam Wainwright's on the phone, you know what I mean? Because, oh, you're going to get a better fucking marriage. Like, literally every moment is about money and how money can hurt, help, how you're sacrificing for it. The people that just get it and don't get it, it's literally perfect in my mind. And even through this this lens, as opposed to just being mm -hmm. like, it's a cool Christmas movie. <laughs> it's definitely It definitely has some of the strongest political themes of, I think, any Christmas movie that I can think of, other than maybe, I don't know, like A Christmas Carol. Like, it, it's, it's very much in that realm of, like, this is not only a holiday story and the story of, like you're saying, community and the human condition and and love and support, but also has a very strong critique of what the, what the role of money and its corrupting nature on the people who hoard it is. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty, I haven't, I gotta be honest, I have not seen this movie in a long time. This is not one of the regular rewatches for me around the holiday season. Although now I think it probably will be because as you're saying, this movie fucking slaps. It moves, it is so entertaining, it is so heartwarming. I think Rifkin and I might have like a couple of critiques with like the, the specifically the anti-capitalist messaging of this film or the, or the way that it is at least framed within this story. But before we get into that, I mean, the biggest takeaway for me was like, like you said, this is a story about community. This is a story about what the power of solidarity and and really mutual aid there's like actual mutual aid happening in this film that they they probably didn't have the terminology for it back then but it's a regular feature of how george operates within the community and then at the end how the community comes together to save george and the building and loan which is literally just handing money to one another it's like oh now's the time where you need money more than i need it so then you're gonna get it and then at the end it's like wow george needs it now more than all of us we're all going to come back in together to to, to support him so like this is a real demonstration of the power of i don't know and something that we've i feel like forgotten about a lot in the 21st century which is just like the people in your community the people in your neighborhood the people your family whatever friends whatever just how important those support systems are not only for your like material survival but also for like your spiritual survival so yeah, yeah that was my big takeaway Riff, i want to hear from you i don't know that i would <laughs> I don't know that I would go as far to call it mutual aid. I think there's early, I think there's like some, there's, there's ideas of that. Certainly. I don't know if I would say that it articulates mutual aid to me. There's a lot of philanthropic 
early white saviorism I would that I'll get into my thoughts on in it. But I will say, starting with the good stuff, I mean, yes, this is a what what's fascinating about getting to sit down and watch it is because I think so many of us are introduced to this movie being played on TV. And it was interesting to learn, oh, it's played so much because no one has to be paid royalties on it, which is wild to hear. Um, but I'm always get it. You always get it in glimpses, right? And then cut up with commercials. And so I never, I don't remember when I, the last time I sat down and watched the whole thing through. I don't know that I ever have. And it, you have to. It's such a well-done film. Like to your point, uh, I mean, just the filmmaking, the shots, the acting, the, oh, just the scene work. It's just so good. Especially like some of the acting moments of just like, oh, that's how you do a private moment on screen. Oh, that's like how you tell a love story with like a subtle political edge. It's so moving. And I can understand why this was such an impactful movie for particularly, I would say, the baby boomer generation, because they were really the ones growing up in the 70s, you know, when it kind of started replaying on TV. And it's so meaningful. And it was a film that I think has such an Americana message. And if you're growing up in the television era, this is the story that you're getting about, like, what it means to be a good moral American at the core. And I think there's really good Mm. things there. Given that, that was kind of like partially and all, yeah. And so it was nice to not see it cut up and just seeing the scene of George running back and being so happy to see the family, you know, which is how I ingested it. Being like, oh, this is a Christmas movie. It's so, it's a very dark, strange yes. movie dark that starts. Yes, dark about as fuck. That starts about suicide. You got an eight, you're, you're up in the, you're literally up in the universe looking down it's just there's lots of very cool elements for it's way ahead of its time in terms of the storytelling and all of that. The lens I really saw it through was this like thinking about like, wow, this is the film that created a lot of these particularly white male archetype of like what it is to be a good liberal man. And that was the mm-hmm. lens through which sure. I saw it. And I was really shook. I think one of the things that I saw that just stood out because I expected it to, I expected the story about the community and the coming together. And like, that was the part I knew. The part that stood out to me the most was this narrative that this man who has given, you know, we see George Bailey selflessly put his brother before him, put the put community before him at a price, as you started to mention, Melanie. Um, there's a price that like you, you start to recognize as unhealthy and question yes. his motives for doing so as well this and that this really drives him to the point of when it just there's one you know the eight thousand dollars that his uncle miss loses and then the evil potter takes and we're like that's not fair but that really break that's like the breaking point for george bailey and what struck me is when the angel comes and shows him this society without him the big lesson learned is like without George Bailey, it becomes Pottersville under like Potter, right? And everybody is basically like falls into destitution. There's a lot of jazz and gambling. And honestly, Pottersville didn't seem that bad to me. Like kind of looked a little more fun. And I think it's important, fun. It's important <laughs> to note that Pottersville had a tinge of there was a tinge of racism in the way that that's portrayed. Like it's a more jazzy black to like, that's the undercurrent of it. Like it's a blacker decrepit town and everyone's a whore or they're gambling. And, but to me that, that aside, I was like, so then George sees this comes back and he comes back. Cause to me, the message was like, 
without George Bailey, everybody's fucked. I just thought that was a really narcissistic fucking message. Because in reality, I don't believe that's the case in this world. But I think that that's how a lot of, not all, not most, I don't want to make a generalization, but I do think there's a very strong liberal, particularly male, ideology there of like, I am the one, right? I'm at the center of this and without me, which is very interesting because it contrasts the mutual aid message at the end, which is like, nobody knows that you have that crazy thing. Like everybody was getting their shit together to help you without that. But like George is the hero of this story. And that message I was just like blown away by. I was like, wait, it just, it made a lot of sense for how we see a lot of and I'll end here, but just like, so there was an article that I read where in the at the RNC in 2020, someone at the Republican National Convention basically was talking about Trump as like, they're like, he is the George Bailey <laughs> of our time. Oh, God. Ugh. And no, it's obviously. No. I reject. <laughs> yeah. And so did Jimmy Sorts' estate. I think his daughter, everybody who had anything to do with this film rejected, rightfully so. Like, that's wild to say. But given this narcissistic tendency, I also could see it like someone who thinks without me, everything's going to be Pottersville. So that was like one of the things that really struck me as like fascinating and strange. That is fascinating. And I'm and I'm interested to hear about this. And it does make sense when you talk about it like that. I do also know that, like, in terms of, like, movies, of course, things always have to be heightened, and that's a part of, like, the way that these mechanics, you know what I mean? It's always life or death. Like, you can't have the drama without the, you know, you can't have the story without the drama and why people are motivated to do what they need to do. But I I think it kind of... So I'm a Gen X, and I'm married to a millennial. My wife is considerably younger than me. And Uh, I have a Gen Z son who's 18. So we have all three of these perspectives in our household, which is wonderful when it comes to these conversations, because I come from a very different place than my wife does and then my son. A lot of that is because I was raised closer. So essentially, like my grandparents were Jimmy Stewart's age. I was raised by the people that were a part of this. You know what I mean? I understand this world. And when I, even when I was watching the movie the other night, I would pause the movie from time to time and I go, do you see that black band on his suit? Do you know what that is? And my wife was like, I have no idea. And I'm like, that's a sign of mourning. You would show people that you're in mourning. And that, and it was, she was like, that's so interesting. And I'm like, yeah, so people could either be like, to give you respect to let you like to understand like maybe why you are the way you are or what's happening with you so you could alert your community hey i'm not in a great place this is why i'm wearing black or why i have this black band around my arm and then i also Mm. pointed out other fashion things about it was because when the young um george bailey goes to the dad's office and he's having the conversation with potter and he's got these black kind of coverlets over his white shirt. And I said to my wife, I was like, do you know what that is? And she was like, I've never noticed it. And I'm like, that's because they were writing with fucking ink and it would get all of their white shirts. And so they had to have these black coverlets over their shirts. So this is I'm watching the movie through a totally different lens than my wife, who is watching this, maybe not understanding the fashion choices, not understanding the hats or the coats or the things or why people do certain things because of tradition or whatever. She's watching from a totally different lens. And this is also, and I come from 
a little bit more on the side of, because I think I'm older and I've seen maybe more hardship in this life than my wife has, like 20 more years of hardship. You know what I mean? And there is a part of me that sometimes can be a little bit more like, yeah, but who's going to take care of us? Seriously, who's going to take care of us? And my wife will be like, because this happened, you know, during the pandemic when people were hoarding food and I was like, we need to get food. And she was like, mm. we don't need to get food. There's enough food. But I'm like, but who literally who is going to take care of our family when there's not enough? So I'm a little bit more on the side of like, who's going to take care of us? And my wife is a little bit more hopeful that we're going to get taken care of. And it's very cute mm. to watch us <laughs> sometimes get in the weeds around this stuff because I'm a little bit more kind of like jaded on that front. And when, and, and when I watched this movie and I was like, I seemed like it seemed like, you know, he was either going to like die and not take and not take care of himself or he was going to sacrifice himself. And I was like, I feel like there's somewhere in the middle. This is kind of leading back to what I was originally talking about, where he maybe could have gone on a couple fucking trips and seen some shit. And <laughs> you not had to kill himself. Do you know what I mean? Like, hey, maybe George yeah. was like, hey, guys, I'm taking a fucking 10 day vacation. OK to go fuck my wife and have some fucking caviar at a fucking nice hotel. Y'all can fucking wait till I get back to have your tragedy because I need a fucking break. And then maybe he wouldn't have been pushed to wanting to kill himself. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. that's my kind of like, I feel like somewhere in the middle as opposed to this very drastic. And I think that's what you, oh, that's what you were talking about. The narcissism, like, oh, I've got to sacrifice myself or only my only me is going to help me through this. And I'm like, I feel like we just need to get more in the middle with everything, which is you. it's not just you, but yes, you do need to take care of you in order to help others. You've got to put your oxygen mask on first before you can then help others and so i feel like it was like if only george could get in the middle but then there would be no it's a wonderful life if george was in the middle with all of this so we need the yeah, drama they wouldn't get to go and have their honeymoon in that that amazing scene where they have their honeymoon in the old house and oh but yeah i love the idea of meeting in the middle yes yeah to to, to speak to what you're both saying i find it so interesting that like this movie gets made in 1946 right after world war ii which was a real uh, demonstration of what collectivism can achieve. And I'm just talking about in terms of like both both uh, abroad and domestically what the U.S. was able to achieve in that war. And I'm not I'm not like I'm not defending like the war itself. I mean, like that was a good war. Like, obviously, there were a lot of like really terrible imperialist uh, tendencies within that war. But you think about the, the depression and then like the lead up to the war, like Americans were on ration cards. Like women had to go work in the factories. Like people had to like had to do real sacrifices in order to make sure that like the US could not only fight the war but sustain its population at home. Can you imagine someone today being like, "Hey, guess what? Guess what America? You all have to ration your food now." It would be fucking oh my God. pandemonium. In the so, like, streets. In, in the bananas. streets. So it's it's really like wild to me that like after this this moment of collective action then comes like almost immediately you know the cold war and then th this idea of like no 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 it's all about the individual it's actually like you got to just watch out for yourself yes. and for your family 
and to sacrifice whatever is necessary to achieve, to accumulate, to make the, the money that you need to. It's a really interesting dynamic that it that it changed so quickly. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe like that individualistic streak ran through a lot of the 30s and the 40s as well. I'm not sure. I didn't live back then. But I, wa I want to jump in and read this quote and see what you think about this, because the thing the other piece of this film, as we mentioned, it's coming out right at the beginning of the Cold War. We're at our second Red Scare. They're about to do that. The big trials in Hollywood in a year. People did not like, they did not like, they were not a fan of this film, the FBI. They were very much like, this is communist propaganda, which is really interesting because I, I didn't, I was looking for it and I'm like, I don't see the communism in this. But here's a quote from John Noakes, who wrote extensively about the hidden history of the FBI's inquiry into It's a Wonderful Life, was a professor of sociology at Franklin and Marshall College. What's interesting in the FBI critique is that the Baileys were also bankers. And what's really going on is a struggle between the big city banker, Potter, and the small banker, the Baileys. Copper was clearly on the side of small capitalism, and the FBI was on the side of big capitalism. The FBI misinterpreted this classic struggle as communist propaganda. I would argue that It's a Wonderful Life is a poignant movie about the transition in the U.S. between small and big capitalism— with Jimmy Stewart personifying the last hope for a small town. It's a lot like the battle between Home Depot and the mom-and-pop hardware store. The systemic critique of this movie is pretty surface level in that it is, like you're saying, Rivka, it's small capital versus big capital, as opposed to challenging the system itself. Because basically it leaves you in a place where it's like you must rely on community, you must rely on small capital in order just to survive within this system rather than challenging the entire system itself, if that makes sense. Like Potter still owns pretty much everything. And I mean, his portrayal is probably one of the strongest things in the mo movie is just the rank evil capitalist. Like he, no two ways about it. Like this guy just is fucking evil because he's like a money grubber and all of that stuff. The ending doesn't take Potter down. It doesn't free the community from his grasp. It just says like, hey, if we just hold out a little bit longer together, then we can we can make it to the next year, to the next whatever it is. It doesn't end with every being like, oh, now we all have public housing. You know, now everyone has a house or like now we all have health care. I think that that's like, um, I, for, I think the reason why we were originally talking about this, whatever, earlier in the year or whatever, when I brought this up is because I was like, do like evil rich people watch It's a Wonderful Life and root for Potter? Like, who do they when they watch <laughs> yeah. this movie, when like, you know, yeah. the head of fucking I don't know what the most corrupt bank, like J.P. Morgan Chase, like when he watches this, does he go like, yeah, Potter, fucking go, man, go. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Or does he want, I mean, how do they watch these movies? Because, because you're that person. I, I don't know. That kind of like, is just, you know, my, my brain starts to drip out of my ears. I don't know how you could well, do it. And yet you're the answer is Trump right. thinks he's George Bailey. Like the, I think the, the Delulu, the delusion around the fucking, like who, the, who thinks they're the fucking hero of this story is hilarious. Yeah, just unbelievable. But yeah, you're right. I mean, nothing is truly solved. I think that this is kind of like man's journey and it's wrapped in this, you know, good versus evil kind of like money story. Because in the end, I think when he is running down that street and he's like, 
what's up building and loan hot you old building and loan i love you and he's <laughs> he's happy to see all of the things that were literally trying to kill him or literally the reason why he wanted to die but his perspective was changed to be like no no i love this thing i love the car that's broken down i and maybe that's fucked up that it's like you should just be happy with the house that's falling apart and the knob that won't stay on the fucking staircase maybe just be happy george bailey but it was a very interesting thing to watch and in, in trying to like be also grateful for what you have and maybe that's a part of like not going for the greed where it's like just be grateful for what you have and that we could all have enough and even when he's saying you know when the bank crashes and everyone comes in and they want to take their money out he's like the money's not here your money is in joe's house your money is with the other people your money is with all of us you can't take it away it's a, it's all interesting from every angle, I think, in this movie. And that's why yeah. I just feel like the way that they crafted whoever, you know, the, the writers when they came together, it's sometimes the most simple story is sometimes the most meaningful because it is just kind of like point A, point B type situation. And there are such, such like strong moments in its critique of the system to that scene when there's the bank run and everyone wants to take their money out of the building and loan and Potter is, he takes over the bank. The bank is out of money, so Potter buys the bank. And then the building alone is about to lose their money. So Potter's like, well, this is my chance to fucking finally get that building and loan. That's disaster capitalism. Like that is a very real concept that happens within this system, which is as soon as enterprises, institutions, people, whatever, start failing financially, then it's a, a chance for people, the people who still have the money to be like, great, now I get to buy more of the things. Now I did, now I get to become owner of more of these things. So like stuff like that, I think is very, very strong. Um, I, I think my favorite moment was uh, it, George's speech to Potter right after his dad dies. You're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was, why in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably, here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them, until they're so old and broken down that they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. Which is a beautiful long speech, but this one part where he says, you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that is the rabble you're talking about. They do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. And that's that's a perfect sentiment in my mind. Like, that's that's about, like, the power of labor. That's That's about the power of community and 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 who actually creates the value not only within a business but within a community i think it's really interesting melanie how you mentioned just him thinking about how much they're talking about money and how so in our society now we just don't and how um i think we are more and more and that's part of the point of this show is to just talk about it but just like how used to how in that period of time it was not your 
was constant part of the conversation. And this is, I think, a lot of this, too, which I think is so interesting how it got turned in at this period of time. It got turned into this, like, fear of a red scare in communism. And there's really, as John Noakes pointed out, there's not any communist. Like, there's really not a communist point in this. It's more populism. And that makes a lot of sense because it's the populism coming out of the 1920s and and that period of time and i think that's an interesting link again back to not to no defense of donald trump but just how populism is so easily co-opted by the right or the left that it's not it's not communism it's not even always anti-capitalism it is this small capitalism can be good you know and that that i can see how the faux populist that Trump was, that would be part of that messaging of like, I, I'm i the one to help save the masses. I think there's something. Um, I don't know how you could make that leap. I mean, but that was his whole thing was populism. Like he thought, I think he knew how to manipulate that messaging of the George Bailey to the broad group of people that he was trying to pull in based off of we're coming together and giving the people what they need and we're fighting the evil. I mean, they in in his version of this, the Democrats were the potters, right? Like the corporatists, the evil. There is this, um, I think that what kind of what you're talking about is like, you know, the wolf in sheep's clothing type situation where it's like, I'm going to tell you I'm one thing, but I am another. And there's this very famous scene that I love very, very much in um, The Last Temptation of Christ, Scorsese's movie about Jesus and there's a scene where Jesus, I can't remember specifically, but like either like there's a very young, beautiful girl in the movie, like kind of like a childlike figure. We uh, perceive her to be an angel throughout this time. And she's and literally in one false swoop, she becomes like the devil. And it's almost like. I think that's like kind of like having street smarts, like growing up in New York City and like being in nightclubs. Had I ever spotted Trump in a club and I would be like, that is a creep. That's a creep. Like you like you don't have recognition for like motherfucking creeps. You know what I mean? That's a fucking creepola. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) steer clear. But I feel like sometimes like that. I feel like those are the people that got kind of tricked into that. Oh, I'm the George Bailey that you're looking for. You know what I mean? And there, I feel like there were just mm. two camps. Like, no, no, we see you for who you are. And it's only like, and that what's so difficult is like, history has unfolded and I'm sorry, but this person is like currently on trial and everyone's like, no, that's not what's happening. Like the, the cognitive dissonance of like the truth of what is happening is what is, like that's where it gets banana town and that's where i I also feel like you i can't believe that we're even in this uh situation i i i can't fucking believe it before we go to awards i do want to make sure we just touch on the i mean to me the other piece of this that was probably the worst was the racial and gender politics of the movie which are hard to deny when you're re-watching it now although i know people who are not conscious of it because i think when you have a film that is this much a part of the American ethos and considered such a classic, it's really hard to see it. And we just keep pushing on this podcast to be like, you can critique and must critique those things. And it probably will transform your relationship to something, but that's important as well. So I think one of the only, one of the only black characters in this film is Annie played by Lillian Randolph, who is the domestic worker of the Baileys. 
has been with them as you know we we first meet her when she's serving them as they're at a family meal we see her get slapped on the ass by harry the teenage boy who she's presumably probably raised she's treated i think by the filmmakers and as a character sort of this eavesdropping child who knows about the family cares about the family but then is also sexualized and then is also doesn't you know represented as someone who doesn't have kids and might be this quote-unquote spinster which in pottersville is like the worst thing to be you know without without george that's what happens to mary because god forbid she have agency without george and yet in this non-pottersville world because she's the black domestic worker it's totally like it's not looked down upon in the same way because what's to be expected there's like all of this really gross i just found it really hard to watch and then it also made me consider in that scene especially at the when they're sitting there and they're being served i was like who what is their class like i think this is sort of like what the populist message does a little where you're looking at the baileys as like part of the people but they're not. They're a different class. And I was like, they haven't had the managerial class terminology yet till the 70s. But I was like, I don't know. What were your thoughts about the class of the Baileys? Because they're not really the same class as like all the other people, you know, but that message is a little hidden from us. You're absolutely correct. I feel like they're probably upper middle class. I don't feel like they're I feel like there's like Potter, then there's the Baileys and then there's all the people that they help, essentially. Like, I feel like they probably had enough money. And it was so funny because you know, as I'm aging and watching these movies through a lens of sexism and racism and all of these things where it's like, I never would have noticed those things, of course. You know, I was grown up watching Gone with the Wind. I showed it to my wife and she was like, this movie is awful. And I'm like, but isn't it great? Like, you know what I mean? So, and I watched it and I was like, oh, look, the Baileys have a slave. I, I That's kind of like lost on me. I never noticed that really. But I mean, yeah. I think about that now. And I also think about the fact that she never married and, 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 and living in service to this family. But, you know, also the comic relief, you know what I mean? Like it just all kinds of things wrapped up in that. But that's the way that it was. There was no, you know, black family to, uh, version of this story to kind of lean it up against because for whatever reason, they didn't think that those stories were worthy, which is a crime unto itself. And so much cinema focuses on the white experience. And, but I feel like, yeah, so they were probably upper middle class and that was something to aspire to then. That was something that you did. You got help and that's where it came from and that's how you did it. And so that's yeah. how it is represented in that way yeah it felt inconsistent at the end when or, or at some point when you know george says like you know my dad sacrificed everything he never he didn't have money for any he couldn't send me to college he couldn't send harry to college it's like but you guys did have a domestic worker so there's like there was some and that's just probably like honestly a plot hole more than like uh like, I don't know if they were intentionally like, oh, these people don't think they're rich, but they actually are rich. Like, or maybe there's some of that intentionality. No, I think that's intentional. But maybe they, but, and I don't know, and I'm literally just spitballing here. And I don't know if like she got paid. I think maybe they probably had a big enough home for her to live there with them. And yes, they could afford to mm. like house her and feed her, but like, was she making $60,000? Like, I, it's not like she was making an income. I feel like, and I could so be wrong about this, but like, I feel like they had just enough to, yes, have her live there and help them and support their family, but certainly maybe 
and maybe because of the sacrificing that they did for the building and loan, right? He was just putting the, and maybe he wasn't a great businessman. Maybe he was taking the money that, yes, he could have saved for himself. Yes, put on your own oxygen mask first. He was like, no, no, that extra $10,000 we got, we got to put it back into the building and loan. And he was maybe recycling it back into his own business and not being kind of smart about it in his own way. Yeah, I mean, I think I think even though it feels subtle, I don't like maybe it wasn't intentional, but I think it is very important to know the psychology and the and the even when someone's writing like this is how it is. We can look at it and be like, well, first of all, no one's as one dimensional as you wrote the character of Annie. So that's just like period or any of the women. So like but I do think a lot of these writers and the people that perspective at that time was that was how it was because you had no relationship with (laughs) You weren't having the conversations with domestic workers of the time. And so you thought that's how it was. And I think there's something really important to that of like, that is the point. I bet they did think we worked really hard and they're not even considering having a domestic worker as being something that's like makes them a different class. And I think that's part of the real part of this problem and part of the psychology is like there was this whole I think emerging class that saw themselves as the hero to the American story to the Ameri- to the populace and there wasn't any of that acknowledgement of like actually maybe if you're the main character that's the fucking problem and maybe everyone could have some agency and do it better and maybe you're not the best businessman maybe you're not the best person for the job George Bailey I would actually <laughs> suggest you are not because you seem to be a little self-involved like this guy who's obsessed which let him like you i'm with you melanie let him travel i bet if he went off and traveled someone would have filled the job and done it better like we don't need him and i'm just gonna say i've seen a lot of people influenced by george bailey running nonprofits, running different places that are really stuck in this superiority complex of but i do good and it makes it very hard for them in this moment of time when people are especially younger generations are saying hey actually some of the stuff that you thought was doing good is harmful i think some of them are able to overcome that and hear it and a lot of people are very resentful and angry when you tell them hey the stuff that you thought you were the george bailey you were actually causing a lot of harm by the way there was a domestic worker making you know, two cents to every dollar and you never thought about them and either they're able to expand and evolve or there's a real bad backlash. And I think we see a lot of that, particularly from a certain boomer generations in positions where they're like, I am the nonprofit leader. I am the one doing good in the world. And I think that's where a lot of the conflict comes from. I hear that. I hear you 100%. And I think these are a lot of the conversations I have so much with my wife. However, there is a part of me that's totally like, if we went back to that time frame, how could how could the Baileys then apply that? So they were saying like, because I feel like so much a part of like the social norm or the social like aspirations were that, yes, you got help and that, you know what I mean? So like, how could they have how, so if we could rewrite this movie, how could how would you rewrite yeah. it so that it would be um, and, and it was funny because I was talking about this with my wife. I would like, wouldn't it be wonderful that there would just be a version of this where George gets to, like, just do some shit and do some good? And, you know, like, so how would how would you how would you apply it? You know what I mean? I so think we- I have it. I love it. I think the opportunity is when George comes back 
And instead of finding that without him, Pottersville is like this horrible place. It's like everybody is actually fine and he has the opportunity to go back and maybe like or maybe there's places that he could help out. But it's like empowering the community a lot more than like him being the solution. Maybe he goes back and he like actually gets the opportunity to like get to know Annie and get to know Mary and recognize like, wow, Mary is like a badass and maybe Mary should like actually have more agency at the loan company and maybe I could go on maybe I'm a better use if I pull myself out of the equation because since childhood he's been doing that right and there's a lot of I do appreciate how there's a lot of I love the depth that we see of his life and there's a lot of trauma in this man which makes sense I can see how he becomes so narcissistic and resentful towards the end I just think the opportunity might be in how he in what the world they show him is without him because that's where this the sort of delusional thinking comes in for me is like I don't buy that that's how it would be without that man so you want him to come back and be like Annie you work at the bank now and you get you get a raise every and also too I'm like a thousand dollars for a Cadillac I'm like get me five this month I'm fucking ready to go <laughs> like I, <laughs> I'm with you send him on vacation we're all taking a fucking break Annie you get a raise Mary I love you so much but you know whatever you you're gonna you're gonna have more decisions about this we're gonna have some more uh, spreading of this, uh, not only work, but the benefits and the whole thing. And let's not have this just be on weirdly on my shoulders because I'm responsible for this. I'm ready for it. I think you should write it and 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 do kind of like a like a like a fan fiction. Yeah. It's a wonderful life of like the best way that this could have turned out. You know what I mean? And that he goes through this delusion and comes back and none of it really matters, right? Because while he's off having all of this, they're they've gotten busy. Mary saves the day, right? She's like she actually organizes and gets everyone to put their money together. It doesn't matter what he's thinking. Like it doesn't actually matter. To anyone but him. When she comes out and she's the librarian with the bad circles glasses, like they had to frump up this like stunning human being. And I was like, she's at the library. Like that was the craziest curse. You know what I mean? That she could, she reads, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I probably blew out your sound. You know what I mean? Like she has her own thoughts, George. It's terrible. It's the worst thing. She's she's learning at the library. Oh, like it's just this <laughs> that was shocking to me on this rewatch i was like oh no what happened to mary she's like living on the street and it's like she's a librarian i was like okay she's employed she clearly enjoys reading like why is this such a terrible thing Just she's got and it, yeah, it's almost like it's a bad thing like she has thoughts and she's earning for herself at this time it's horrible <laughs> don't save her you know what i mean <laughs> Hey, it's it's not perfect. It's flawed. It's got a lot of stuff, but for the it is it is absolutely a slice of time for what it was. And I, I for Christmas one year when I was much younger, I got a um a book about how the movie was made and all of those snow scenes, it was shot in like 100 degree weather. That's all soap and um and oh, like God. fake snow and like you know how the snow is all collecting on them it's like soap flakes or corn flakes or like rice flakes or wow. something that is all like it was 100 degrees and they had to play christmas in burbank somewhere you know what i mean like sweating probably some of that classic asbestos soap that they had <laughs> back in the 40s yeah lie it's like just lie is in the air <laughs> no i mean pound for pound this is such an entertaining 
like beautiful, wonderful movie. Like despite all of despite all of these like very uh, very specific criticisms that we're applying in the context of this podcast, like yeah. it's it's a beautiful movie. And I was really like you know Jimmy Stewart. He's Jimmy Stewart. We all love him. But I was I was blown away by Donna Reed. No, I thought she was so charming. Uh, the moment where he's outside of her house pacing and she's like what are you doing picketing all of these like little quips that she had their chemistry was just like so warm and beautiful the scene on the te- when they're at the telephone is i think one of the best so if you have not watched this i think you have to watch it not only for the acting and the filmmaking but also to it's a really important movie to understand like this american life truly it's so crucial to mm-hmm. watch it watch it critically but also watch it because it's a great film and just Watch the whole thing. Don't wait for it. Don't watch with commercials either. It's so funny when the mother is like, George Bailey, what's he doing? He's like, he's making violent love to me, mother. Like, I just think it was so fucking funny. <laughs> so funny. And, and, you know, and, and also, too, these are these are the unsaid things about money in these conversations. George Bailey can't afford to fucking give you a life. Sam Wainwright is about to call. This is the deep concern of a mother that her child is going to starve to death and is willing to fucking like just do what I say, girl. Get on the fucking phone. It doesn't even matter that you don't love this person. You need to fucking eat and you need a life and you need a house and you need these things. And this is how you're going to motivate your life. It's all this like under. And I think also two people don't quite understand those social things that people had to do back then because we just went to go see um killing of the flower moon which was just challenging as all hell that movie it should they should have given him 100 hours not three hours to make that movie but um it was uh so much about like there was no safety net for you you needed the people were willing to sacrifice themselves just to literally survive to eat Mm -hmm. to have money, to do whatever. You couldn't just, you couldn't fuck around. Like you had to make strategic moves in your life because you would suffer and die if you didn't. And I think that people, there's just food right here. There's just food every, like we have all the stuff. There's no, there's, it's like, we don't have that kind of grip on us that you would not, that you would have to marry for money, even at the most lowest class. You, we wouldn't even dream of that. People do it, but you know. That's actually, the, that's a good setup. The last point that I wrote down before we go to the awards is, and I'll make it quick, is that, you know, George's whole thing is that he wants to travel. He wants to travel. He wants to ex- explore. He wants to create. He wants to, in essence, be free. And I think this is an important, I just wanted to bring this up because I think, you know, people today think in 2023, think being free means that you are simply free to sell your labor to the highest bidder. Or, you know, if it was the 40s, you know, marry for marry for money because that was going to be the most secure thing to do. Whereas from our perspective, as for me personally, as like a socialist, like I, I want a society where people have actual freedom and actual freedom means healthcare, housing, food, education, and not having to spend your life living paycheck to paycheck. That's what actual freedom could look like. And I thought he summarize that when he's talking to his dad at dinner he says oh pop i couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office this business of nickels and dimes and spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents on a length of pipe i'd go crazy i want to do something big and something important so Mm. i i thought that was a really beautiful sentiment because i think that's something that still exists today people just want to be free yeah 
but have a have a misconstrued understanding of what freedom actually means today. Yes. Well said. Totally agree. Totally agree. All right. Well, I really I could keep talking about this movie because I loved it so, so much. But um, this is the part of the episode where we give this movie some awards. The first award we give is best politics goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. It might be Mary for me. I think because Mary really is the one who gets the closest. Like, as you said, again, I don't know if it's mutual aid or just crowdfunding, but getting the community together at the end It's really her who instigates that. And that's really the main reason why. I agree with you. I think for all of the reasons we already discussed, we can't just like easily hand it to George. Although George is like a pretty upstanding guy. But Mary has like a very genuine like altruism to her. You know, like right after they spend all their honeymoon money, I was like, oh boy, here comes a scene where Mary's like, yo, George, like kind of wanted to go on a honeymoon. But instead she's like, here's a fake honeymoon in this broken down house that I made for you. And you're right. She She's the one that, like, incites the mutual aid at the end. So, I, yeah, I, I would give it to Mary as well. And she's the one that goes, you know, they're all standing there going, like, what are we going to do? Because they all want their money out of the bank. And he's convincing them, don't take your full amount. And also, too, this isn't closing your account. Like, he's coaching them through it. But I don't think that he was thinking, like, how much. And she was like, we have the money. It was literally her idea to be like, here's the $8,000 or the $2,000 when she was so celebrating that money. She was like, I feel like a bootlegger's wife. I feel, I'm so excited. Like the money gave her so much joy in that moment. But she was like, this is the first thing that I'm gonna volunteer up in this moment. And also too, the speeches that she gave when the houses were being, you know, for bread, may you always be, you know, satisfied and salt, may you always have spice of life and may you always, you know, in the wine and may you always have fun. And she stuck by him, you know, even when Sam Wainwright shows up in a fucking like chauffeur driven, like fancy ass car with some girl with a fur coat. And then they have to do that walk back to their fucking like not so great car. And, you know, she doesn't leave him and she stays by his side and through the whole thing. And I think, yes, I think Mary is the queen of this movie and would be amazing as the new CEO of the building and loan. I just think. <laughs> <laughs> She's so clear from the my favorite moment, again, why I'm like, oh, I always catch the end of this and I'm so happy to watch the beginning when they're little and she's just little and, you know, he's deaf in one ear and she bends down over him and she says, is this your bad ear? He can't hear. And she says, I love you. What does she say? Like, I'll love you till the end. I'll love George you forever. I love you forever. So sweet. She's unwavering. And actually, more and more I think about it against her, he's really <laughs> not it. <laughs> like <laughs> She knows for the, you know, he's really a hot mess. Would not recommend. I know. It's totally like, I don't know. You could have gone for Sam Wainwright. You could have had, you know what I mean? But like, yeah, George is just, you know, just everything on roller skates. Yes, absolutely. All right, our next award is Worst Politics. Goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie, which is, I think, an easy one for this one. I don't think it, I think, I don't think it gets worse than Henry F. Potter. 
the original no. rank capitalist. Yeah, Drew, Drew, Bar- Drew Barrymore's grandfather. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like I feel like also too next in line after that is his uh, wheelchair assistant, uh, who literally watches him do all of this shit. <laughs> literally witnesses <laughs> him fucking stealing the money and pushing him more to see out the door. Like literally the wind beneath his wings. <laughs> and such horseshit that there's no resolution with Potter that just like. The end of the movie is it doesn't even like there could have even been a scene of just like the townspeople just like throwing eggs at him. Just no, something. Right. Just some just some loss. But like the end of his movie is I just got eight thousand dollars. Like that's that's where we leave Potter. Also too, eight thousand dollars? Like I'm just totally like, oh my God, like you you ruined ruined this man's life over eight thousand dollars. Like you Fuck, you know what I mean? But you're right. The movie mm-hmm. never ties the bow on Potter. Potter never gets his due because I don't think this is a movie truly about that. I think this is truly about the struggle of the human existence and wanting to stay on this planet. And I feel like my most favorite, and I could literally weep saying this, my most favorite line in this movie is when we're looking up in the universe and they little the little star comes in that's Clarence and they're like, we have a job for you and you could get your wings. And he's like, tell me about this person. He's like, it's George Bailey. And he's like, what's wrong with him? Is he sick? And the, and the other universal planet globe goes, even worse, he's discouraged. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> because you could be sick and still be hopeful. But if you're discouraged, that's it. You, there is no, there is no up from discouraged. You are literally at the end of your rope. And until you've really gotten to that point in your life where, and I hope no one ever listening to this ever gets there, where you make that, you have that moment where you're like, I think I'm done on this planet. You don't truly understand what it is to be discouraged. And even watching the movie where it was like every moment, it was like he was just almost out and he just like, bang, he has to fucking stay back, stay back. And, and it just kept on coming for him and coming for him and coming for him and coming for him until the point where he's kicking over his the things that he's made, his architecture and yelling at his children. And it's like, no, you can get there. You can fucking get there. And no, he's not sick. He's just discouraged. And I was always just totally like, it's it, to me, it's like the greatest and and smart. It's smart to me to start the movie like that. And our last award is best supporting character slash spinoff goes to the supporting character that you would want to watch a whole other movie about. I've actually got a, a good one. This is kind of a joke, but I did raise the question for me. So Clarence, Clarence, the George's guardian angel who is sent down to save him at the very beginning in that first scene with the with the galaxies, they say, you know, Clarence has tried and failed at getting his wings multiple mm-hmm. times. So I guess we should give him another shot. So that made me think. Were there other people, like other humans on Earth that Clarence tried to save who ended up killing themselves? So I am very interested in that, watching a movie of Clarence trying but failing to save multiple people on planet Earth. I don't know what the message or the theme of the movie is, but I just was like, that really piqued my interest. Melanie is aghast right now. Clarence's origin story? The prequel of Clarence? (laughs) I am so fucking here for it. 
what I, I how do we do a Kickstarter today to start that movie <laughs> where it was like, oh, this is his third strike. If he doesn't get it, he's going to the other place because the other two, you know, we didn't we didn't get to keep those. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> he fucking screwed the pooch. Yeah, and George, 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 like sacrificed so much, and he got a second-rate angel, second class. He even got a bullshit angel. I thought that was so funny about Clarence too, because when I was looking at like through George's narcissism, I'm like, and on top of it, George gets to also be like, oh, and by the way, I gave an angel his wings. Like that was, I was like, wow, this. I was like, it's wild that that was the setup. George was like, fine, I'll give you your wings. I won't kill myself. Like, I have to do everything for everybody. I'm so great. Hilarious. <laughs> but yes, that's a brilliant idea. You're welcome, Clarence. Here you go. And get yourself some real underwear, okay? Because, bitch, <laughs> what? I would give it to Violet. I think Violet was... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I just thought there was so much that I wanted to know about Violet's journey that was like, she was like very much. Violet. Yeah. Like Violet from the top two. I said, you know what? I like this girl who knows what she wants. When it's like we meet Violet and Mary as little girls, they're, which also, you know, just there being like, she's like, I know what I want. I want George Bailey. Okay. Can't, like, but that's vilified. A woman who knows what she wants and says it. Like to me, she was very fascinating as a character. And I wanted all things violent. This looks like a blast. Again, Pottersville looked a lot like a lot of fun to me. Oh my god, one hundred percent. And what I my I also love too because I'm not an outdoorsy girl. I am I'm violent all day, all day long. Like I'm like it's dressed, it's hair, it's giving, it's serving, fur hat. But I'm like, but Violet doesn't have money to eat, but she's got a fucking fur hat. I'm like, bitch, Violet has my fucking money skills, okay? And when he when he when he has that moment where he's like, hey Violet, you wanna you wanna go crazy? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, we'll go, we'll climb to the top of the mountain. She's like, that's ten miles away. And he's like, and we'll take off our shoes. And she was like, I put my feet in the grass. Like I was like, ew, George, you're a fucking hippie. Like, ew. to get rid of it. Yes. That was such a weird moment too, because you're like, wait a second. So if Violet was like, yeah, let's go. Would everything else have changed? Like nobody else, you know, I'm like, would that story have totally changed? You know, but no, it's just George being taken out of the equation where the, you know, but Violet could have said, okay, George, let's go. And then what? And that was a totally unhinged request. Yes, I mean, Violet could have just fucked his brains out on top of Baldy Mountain or whatever. And <laughs> we would have had a very different movie. <laughs> If Violet was totally like, fuck this dress and fuck these shoes. Yeah, I mean, he, and here's the thing. And maybe he wouldn't have been so fucking uptight about all of it. You know what I mean? It could have been a completely different movie. Yeah, not to under, just sorry. I'm thinking about this again and not to, just to underscore it a little more. Yes, we get it. You've been putting things, everyone else ahead of you your whole life, which leads to deep resentment. And like, that's on you, dude. Sorry. Like, but you know these other people are ha are doing like he has it pretty well compared to let's say the domestic worker or even his wife who's doing so much she has how many kids baby boom like she's doing the whole baby boom in their whole house for and she keep manages to keep beautiful happy can like not freaking out he freaks the way he freaks out at these kids okay and then oh, they yeah. just forgive him when he returns before like the way he's like ah! and then freaks out at the teacher Oh, yeah. The things he says to this then, teacher on the phone. And she's like, why must you torture the children? Like, just 
because he's done this before type situation. Yeah. Mm. Oh my god. And then when he hops on the phone to the to the teacher and then uh and then the most interesting thing at the when he's at the bar because he prays for his life and then next to him is the teacher's husband who punches him in the face and then he's like, Oh, that's the the answer to my prayer. But meanwhile, it's like the prayer, the answer to the prayer was this coming at a later time, you know what I mean? Which is like it's it's this idea that sometimes, you know, the requests of the universe moves much slower than we would mm. want them to. And also to the kind of like thinking that some of these things and I think this is where I get a little uptight about this kind of like the universe type talk. And this happens a lot in L.A. I'm generalizing everyone out here, so don't clutch your pearls. But this kind of like, oh, the uh, the universe is, you know, is is taking care of me and all of this stuff. I don't think the universe gives a fuck. I really don't. Like, I'm really just totally Same. like, and free will um, is not the universe trying to hurt you. It's literally like that guy has every fucking right to stand up and punch you in the fucking face because you read his wife, who's a teacher, who's taking care of these children. It's not the universe. It's not. It's not the universe. And I think I feel like mm. sometimes even in that in that encapsulated little moment was just almost kind of like this idea because faith goes very much through this believing, believing in yourself. Why? You know, all of these things. But I, I, I think you guys have such great ideas and I would love to see the Violet spinoff because to me it sounds amazing and I feel like it should be directed by Darren Aronofsky just right off the gate. Then, and I love the Clarence spinoff. You know, I want- What's I want yours, Den- Melanie? Oh my God. I don't know. You guys have said such good ones. I just want to vote for yours. I, you guys said such good ones and those feel to me like the most, the most magical. And also too, I really do- love Mary and she's so soft and this is something that I don't possess which is any sort of even keeledness I don't I don't have that you know what I mean I just I'm dramatic I'm over the top I've got ideas they're probably not correct I run with them I run my mouth you know what I mean like I don't have that kind of like um that gentle leadership I'm usually just a steamroller just knocking down walls and taking names. You know what I mean? So love that. I think she's, mm-hmm. I think she's so wonderful in this, uh, in this movie. And yes, that telephone scene is so magical when they're just that, but I also too, that I, maybe you kind of recognize this too, Rivka about like, he was so he was when he was telling her that he loved her, he was like kind of abusive. Like, I don't want this. And he's, he's like hurting her. He shakes her. He shakes her like a little baby. Yeah, and I was watching it with my wife, and I was like, oh, dear. Like, that's not good. (laughs) And I feel like sometimes in movies, in old movies, and well, maybe in the 80s and 90s, too, there was this this plot point, and I can't really describe it. Well, I'm going to describe it now, where, oh, I hate this person. It means I love them. Do you know what I'm talking about in movies? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I feel like... Maybe this is the plot of Hollywood writers where they're just totally like, we're going to write this awful male human being, but you're going to love them. You know what I mean? But I'm like, when he's shaking her in that moment and he's like, I don't want this thing. I don't want to marry you and I don't want children and I don't want to fucking do this. Cut to their wedding. And I was like, that is a fucking fucked up moment to have transpire that he is literally telling her that he doesn't want her, but that he's going to marry her. It felt painful. And it also felt like 
decades and decades of, I feel like, what women did. And also men, too. I feel like men sacrificed greatly to be married mm -hmm. to a woman that maybe they didn't want to get married and maybe they didn't want children, but they were told or maybe they were gay or bi or they wanted to just fucking be on the apps. But it was 1956. And you know what I mean? Grandpa yeah. Caesar, yeah. my mom's my mom's dad, I know, who had a fucking mistress who I just found this out for 22 years. And then they got divorced after 38 years. Like Harold, Harold wanted to be on the apps. Yeah, it's just it's it's one of those moments that just reinforces, uh, you know, just the way that hetero relationships are had been depicted throughout that era, which is like, if you're a man, it's okay to just grab the woman and just like pull her and start kissing her without her consent. And then eventually she will just bend to your will, which is you, you hate to see it. Uh, it's just it's just one of those things that comes up, especially in films from this era. Yes, she wants it. Yeah. She wants, and it's literally like, mm -hmm. but it, there's always this moment where she's fighting and then there's a moment of like release where it's literally like you watch it in their bodies. They're like, yes, this is what I wanted all along. I hated you because you were horrible, mm -hmm. but secretly let's do it and spend our lives together. Like, I don't know. Okay, well, this is the point in the conversation, as you know, that we just ask you about how, and I know you answered this on our conversation about Brazil, but Maybe even if there's something currently that you're doing that you feel that you're living your values as either an anti-capitalist or otherwise. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I continue, even in watching this movie, I continue to want to support myself so that I can continue to support others as much as, as possible. And... I love getting this information from my amazing millennial wife who sometimes disagrees and is totally like, we could give so much more. Or I watch her sometimes sacrifice herself so much and I'm just totally like, it's a ch it is very challenging for me sometimes inside of it because just because we have this argument sometimes where she has these ideals about our government. And I'm like, but that's not what's happening now. That's not what's happening right now. Like, that's not today these are people's lives like right now and i feel terrible sometimes that we have to like play into this system because it's not here yet the dream isn't here yet i would literally do whatever to have universal health care so because i have an 18 year old son he's coming into this world i don't know what this world is going to be for him and i can tell you that i had such a different experience growing up in the 80s and the 90s with my hopes and my dreams everything seemed possible and my millennial wife and my gen z kid don't don't have what i got to experience with that so i feel like in right now it's mostly like because i i can i can aspire and do everything i can to support those systems coming into place because i want them 100% i want them all they are not fucking here right now. So that doctor's appointment that has to happen next week, sorry, I've got to pay for up out the nose fucking health insurance. And as a woman who's going through menopause and the fact that my current medical experience is not covered by my insurance, I am paying thousands upon thousands of dollars so I can hang on to my mental health because my brain isn't chemically balanced because of the loss of estrogen and progesterone. This happens to 50% of the planet and it is not fucking recognized because we have insurance companies, we have whatever, big pharma, we've got all of the fucking bullshit that's happening. So 
What do I need to do? I need to make sure that I'm earning enough to fucking pay for these out-of-pocket experiences. So yes, I have to help myself and take care of myself because if I'm not taking care of myself, I can't be of service to anybody else. And yes, I can't be the George Bailey at the end of all of this because everything is riding on me, Rivka. (laughs) You're a much better George Bailey than Donald Trump. I'm ready. I've got the orange hair. I mean, you know, I should run for president. (laughs) Melanie, where can our audience find you and your work, like on on the socials? I'm Melanie Vesey everywhere. uh, And you can watch my comedy and whatever on my website, MelanieVesey.com. But you can also go to Promotional Rescue. You can see my clients. You can see what I do, who I help, who I work with. And if you need help promoting yourself uh, and not feeling gross about it, well, then let's talk because I'm here to help. Melanie, thank you again for joining us. This was so much fun. Um, And I'm so glad I finally got to watch this movie or rewatch this movie all the way through. So thank you. Well, you guys are a joy. Uh, And uh, if there's any opportunity to talk about movies, I will be there and express all of my uh, weirdo ideas about it. So there we go. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to MVC Pod to find all of that information. For next week's movie, we'll be watching another holiday classic, A Muppet Christmas Carol. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.